Welcome back. This is going to be part two of the lecture on Cantos 16 through 18. And in fact, we're going to touch on 19, 20, and 21 as well. Last time we talked about Terrace 3 of the Purgatorio, the Wrathful. And we talked about the punishment being dark, acrid smoke coming out from the Wrathful, blinding them from the truth of what is happening around them. We talked about Marco Lombardo. And he gave us some ideas on free will and our relationship to the stars. Apparently... Even if the stars can affect our temperaments, it is we that make our own decisions. He then gave us a disquisition about the proper relationship between the church and the state, suggesting that they're supposed to act as counterweights to each other, and that if you corrupt, corrupt one, as Dante and Marco believes, the church, the Catholic church, was corrupted by the uh, gift or donation of Constantine in 325, then you corrupt both. Then why would Florence now be corrupt? Well, A, the decisions of those in Florence and what it is that they're doing, and B, the fact that the church and the state have become corrupt, and C, why, or subpoint B, why would it be the case that the church would have been corrupt? Well, B, uh, subpoint two, the decisions of those who work for the church. The same solution or the same problem comes up time and time again. Why is the church corrupt? Why is the city corrupt? The decisions of man. And that seems to be what Marco Lombardo is circling around very different from Brunetta Latini in Canto 15 in the Inferno. Alright, so let's move on. Now, we saw these examples of gentleness. We saw Mary being very gentle to Jesus after he didn't come back when he was supposed to and she could have really let him have it. Saw an example of this Pisistratos um, tyrant, not uh, kill publicly execute this young man who attempted to kiss his daughter and his wife was very upset about that and we saw also the example of St. Stephen the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death and while doing that was praying for the salvation of those stoning him a very unique sort of thing to wish alright we then talked about Dante recognizing his own errors and understood that this must be part of what the function of art is that when you have narrative portrayed in front of you, uh, that which leads to a good end, possibly a comic, and that which leads to a bad end, possibly a tragic end, then that enables you as a choosing entity, as a sentient entity, to choose whatever path you would like. And that seems to be what the notion of freedom is in this text rather than absolute freedom. You can't necessarily choose what good and bad are, but you can choose whether you wish to do good or bad. And you might want to think about whether that is less or more free than being able to choose the basic fundamental reality of all things. Um, perhaps if there is a game set, that is the only way whether you can know you are a good or bad player. And perhaps limitation is necessary for uh, morality in that case. That there must be rules in order to obey them well or poorly. And perhaps that is what life is truly like. Because obviously everything that does exist and is living is limited in some way or another. Huh. Hmm. All right. And so what is it that Dante is going to start recognizing through this art? The flaws in reality? The flaws in Florence? The flaws uh, outside himself? No, no, no. He already knew, well knows those flaws. Very easy to see the flaws of others. What he starts to see or the flaws, or the moat in his own eye, the speck of dust in his own eye, rather uh, than uh, that which is in another's. He says, when my soul turned from these appearances, 
to the things which are truly independent of itself, I recognized my errors, which were not falsehood. I love that. I love that. The things which are truly independent of oneself. Are those great truths or are those, in this case, the sins or the errors? And if they are the sins and the errors, does that mean that that which is sinful or erroneous within oneself is not truly a part of oneself, and thus when one removes it from oneself, one is removing something like a disease from oneself rather than something which is part of oneself. And perhaps that also explains why it's painful to develop a new habit and, and replace an old habit or to excise an old habit because just in the way a surgeon's knife is painful when removing a gangrenous limb, so would it be the case that in removing a bad habit from oneself, one removes, well, something that has become a part of oneself and thus it does cause pain to have it removed. Very interesting. All right, moving forward. Examples of wrath. This first one is a great one. And should you ever have the opportunity to read Ovid's Metamorphoses, this will possibly be the most shocking story you read in there. And it is a handbook full of shocking stories. First example of wrath. There was a woman named Procne. She was married to a man named Tereus. She once cried to her husband, Tereus, that she would very much like to have her, son, her daughter, or excuse me, not her daughter, but her wife. Oh, my goodness, I'm misspeaking today. Her sister. There we go. Those are the, that's the gamut of female relationships there. Wife, mother, sister. Um, she wanted her sister to come from, I believe, Athens, where her father lived, in order to give her company, because she now had a darling baby son. Her husband then went to Athens to acquire this, this sister for him. Now, when he met the sister, you can already guess that this is going to go badly, because when he saw her, he thought she was very beautiful and developed some very bad ideas in his head that a husband should not have for the sister of his wife. And then he really acted on that because he decided to take her without her sister's knowledge to a hut in the woods where he then consummated his love with her. Sounds a little bit like a horror movie from the 90s. He then cut out her tongue so that she could never, ever say anything to anybody about what had happened to her. And then he came back to the city and claimed to Procne that she had been killed or she had died on the sea. So he kept this woman, unbeknownst to anyone, trapped in a hut without a tongue. What did she do? She, like Penelope, created a tapestry that had secret signs on it that was then somehow given to her, her sister, Procne, who then read it, became enraged, and then because of her rage, she uh, killed her young son, who was also the son of Tereus, the man who had done this to her, her, uh, to her sister, and then put him into a stew, and then Tereus ate that stew. Yes, and this isn't even the first time you've ever heard of somebody eating their own child, if it comes to Greek and uh, Roman mythology. We, uh, or at least some child. We all recall the story of Thiestes from last year, the son of the, um, uh, from the line of Atreus. Um, what was his father's name? I'm forgetting. Ah, Sisyphus. Sisyphus, of course. Uh, and he attempted to feed a stew full of human to the gods. And so very interesting. And so in any case, we see here that rage for, has this woman kill her own son in order to get back at her husband. And you might ask, if you are very uh, economically inclined or capitalistically inclined, what's the net benefit here? And I would say, no net benefit. 
You lose your husband, your son, your uh, sister. Uh, her sister turned into some sort of bird afterwards, and Progne herself turned into a nightingale, and I believe Terius turned into something like a chicken hawk or something like that, trying to fight after them. The whole idea is, can a family devolve into chaos uh, because of anger? Yes, and we know that well because of the giant family of the Achaeans last year and what happened or transpired between Achilles and Agamemnon. Become subject to anger, possibly destroy everything that it is that you love and know, including your own children. And, uh, I tell you that story because I think it really is a really fascinating story. And in some ways, as horrifying as it is, is it a very human story? Are there any creatures on this planet that could be as uh, uh, duplicitous, as malevolent, as clever uh, as we humans could be? Not so far as we know. And if they are, they better start writing so we can understand them. Uh, because we probably want to learn from them. We probably want to learn from them. All right. Next example. I know much less about this example. It is of this guy, Haman, being crucified. Now, crucifixion is a pretty nasty way to go. I haven't done a ton of reading on it, though I have known people that have done some reading on it, and they can tell you a little bit more about what happens. There are multiple ways to be crucified. Supposedly, you can have ropes put around your legs and your feet. Supposedly, you can have nails uh, shot through both, both of them, or rather, uh, actually hammered through both of them. And I did read an article last year that there is a, there is some guy in South America who gets ritually crucified every year of his life uh, in thanks for, I think, his son being cured of a disease on that day each year. You can look that sort of thing up if you want. I, I thought that was sort of strange when I first read it, but humans are the strangest creatures on Earth, so I'm actually sort of not surprised whenever I hear about something weird like that. So this guy, come on, this is an Old Testament example rather than a uh, Greco-Roman example. He supposedly wanted to suppress the Jewish people. And in fact, he had this subordinate named Mordecai, and I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they were advisors to the king. And basically, Mordecai was doing a pretty good job, and Haman became uh, sort of jealous, envious, or worried that, uh, in a Pierre de la Vigne sort of way that this Mordecai, who was a foreigner and at that, and a Jewish foreigner at that, there was a prejudice at that time, um, well, that he would take his position. And so he conspired to get it to be where Mordecai would be accused of some crime and would be crucified. And well, when the truth comes out, uh, that this hateful anger against Mordecai has resulted in treachery, well, Haman ends up sharing the fate that he wished to give to Mordecai. He himself ends up being crucified, wherein, whereas he wanted to crucify someone else, suggesting sort of, I, I would say, another Achillean uh, lesson, that that which you wish to do to someone else to harm them during anger is that which may very well be done to you. Live by the sword, die by the sword, or... You know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Because if you throw a stone at someone's head, what might happen to you? A stone might get thrown at your head. You want to crucify somebody for uh, what you believe are uh, treacherous aims. Perhaps you will yourself be crucified for your own treacherous aims and actions. All right. Good, 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 good. Moving on. Last example of wrath. This is one we know very well. As we recall from last year in the Aeneid, the second half, books 7 through 12, the Iliadic half, uh, Queen Amata figures in largely. She is the queen 
of the Latins. She is King Latinus's wife, and she is the mother of the, the future Queen of Aeneas, Queen Lavinia, who is the third wife from the third continent of Aeneas. Recall that his first wife is Asiatic, Creusa, his second wife, wife, is Dido, she is African, and the third is European. So very like Zeus, Aeneas has wives or wives everywhere that he looks, every uh, place that he goes. Well, recall that Queen Amata had a bit of a prejudice against foreigners. She believed that her daughter Lavinia should marry the local Rutulian man, Turnus. She did not much care for the fact that Aeneas came from uh, A, not a kingdom, because Troy had been defeated and fallen, and B, from Asia, a different place. Um, she, even though there was a prophecy from their local deity that their people would thrive if Lavinia married Aeneas, still she did not want it to happen. And so, well, when she gets false report laid on, I believe it's in all the way in book 12, the last book, of the Aeneid that Turnus has died. She, like Jocasta in the Oedipus Tyrannus, hangs herself, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and it's sort of sad that she does it, given the fact that Turnus is not yet dead, but Turnus will die at the end of the Aeneid. So um, not quite as tragic as if uh, she were like a Romeo and Juliet and she killed herself thinking something had happened which had not actually happened, which would have kept her from dying had, had it. Uh, had she known that it had not actually happened, just to say it in the most complicated way possible. And so the, the idea here, or the disembodied, or not disembodied voice, but rather the imaginary image that embodies itself or represents itself in our minds, shows Queen Amata, who killed herself in rage after false news that Turnus had died. She was the mother of Lavinia, and... Ah, uh, uh, yes, I just wanted to repeat the quote to you that uh, Lavinia says. She says you something along the lines of, you wished, you wished, actually, I will just pull it out here in 1739, or 1719 to 39. Let's see, I am right there. Ah, yes. There arose in my vision, this is 34, a young girl bitterly weeping and saying, oh, queen, why through anger did you do away with yourself? You killed yourself so as not to lose Lavinia. Now you have lost me. It is I who mourn mother for your ruin more than another's. And so because of the bitter anger and prejudice that Amata felt against uh, Aeneas and not wanting to give her daughter away, well, she ends up giving her life away and she loses her daughter anyway and also her daughter loses her. And so you might well ask, was Amata thinking clearly in that situation? seeing as she simply wanted to deny her daughter to a foreign man, but now that she's gone, nobody is going to stop that from happening. Uh, is she actually getting the outcome that she wanted? And the answer is probably no. And would she have wanted, do you think she thought through what the cost of her death would be to her daughter, just like do you think Dido thought through what the cost of her death would be to her people and to Anna, the friend of hers that is so close to her that she calls her sister. And so you might well begin to wonder whether the true cost of anger is blindness. That in being able to focus on one thing in specific, which you seem to be able to do in a very intense way when you're angry, does it blind you 
to the truth of other motivations and to other things that you care about in that moment? And is it truly dangerous then when you are angry? All right, let's talk about natural and rational love, but let's not talk too much about it. Virgil then decides to show his salt as a guide. And now this happens in Canto 17. Canto 17 is pretty much the diametric center of this entire poem. Remember, there are 100 total cantos, which means cantos 50 and 51 are the middle of this poem. And so canto 17 of the Purgatorio plus 34 of the Inferno, we're on the 51st canto. And so it makes sense that we would get some of the biggest messages at the very middle, the very heart of the poem. And so what is it that we talk about at the heart of the poem? Well, we've talked about anger. We've talked about free will. Now we've got to talk about love because what comes out from the heart? Love comes out from the heart. All right, and so we get two types of love. First type of love is natural love. And so this is what Virgil has to say about natural love. Natural love is always right. <laughs> and so it's not a very useful concept. If you love something naturally, then it is directed correctly by nature. And so great. But he says there's a second kind of love, and this is responsible for all the problems in the world. And so what? How could love be the problem or the cause of all the problems in the world? I thought that love was the solution. You listen to the Beatles, love, love, love. You see this holiday season, you watch love actually. Love, 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 though. There are quite a few problems that come about from love and love actually, too, I would say. Um, but well, how can it be that love causes problems? Well, all of you have read the Iliad and you understand uh, the Trojan War and what precipitated that, which was the stealing of Helen by Paris of Troy uh, from Menelaus. And so we know that love is at least involved in lots of our problems. And we actually know that uh, it was a curse from Aphrodite, goddess of love, that led to that abduction. So let's talk about this rational love that can have such an erroneous effect. Well, there are two ways that rational love can go astray. And the first way will describe all the first three sins of the purgatorio. Envy, anger, and pride. The last four will be described by the second way that love can go wrong. And so let's look at this. The first way is that you can have the wrong goal or object. That sounds right. Your love can wish to bring around about the wrong effect. And so I suppose the problem with pride, and I can read this in a moment. I think I will read this near the end of the lecture. This is, these are lines 91 and 139. Let's see. Let's see. Neither creator nor creature was ever, he then began, my son, without love, either natural or rational. You know that. Natural love is always without error. Okay, easy, good. That will be good for the quiz tomorrow. But the other kind may err, the wrong object, is the first way, or else through too much or too little vigor. Okay, good. So it's either you have the wrong object, the wrong goal for your love, or you either pursue it too vigorously, too much pursuit, or not enough. You're too lazy about it. In fact, that will be what the slothful have the problem with. While it is directed to the primal good, that's directed towards God, essentially, uh, for Dante, and keeps to its limits in relation to the secondary, it cannot be the occasion of sinful pleasure. Good. So as long as you have the right goal and you pursue it in the right way, you're good. But when it is twisted to evil, 
or seeks the good with more or less concern than it ought to have, the creature is working against the creator. Then your love is working against the purpose of the love. So you can understand that love must be the, sort of every, the seed of every virtue that is in you and of every action deserving of punishment. So how it is, what it is and how it is that you direct your love determines whether you are blameworthy or praiseworthy. So you are judged, at least according to Dante here, according to Virgil, by what you love and how you love it. And that makes a lot of sense to me because actually when we say to be diligent in your studies, the word diligo, diligo, or from which we get diligent, means to love something. And so to pursue something adamantly or with a great passion means to be dip, diligent. And in fact, studeo means that to some extent as well. So to study something means to uh, come to know something in a way that will enable you to love it. Now, because love can never turn its face from the well-being of the one who loves, all creatures are free of hatred of themselves. And since no being can be conceived as separate and on its own, apart from the primal being, every creature is remote from hatred of him. He's simply saying here that hatred doesn't exist uh, except for as a defect of love. It follows, if my demonstration is correct, that the evil which is loved is that of your neighbor, because no one loves the evil within themselves. They love to see the evil within other people because who are who is not responsible for fixing that evil you are which means you don't have to make a change which means of course you love the evil in other people and identify it because you don't have to do anything about that but when you have to identify your own then you're responsible for it then you have to do something we're all sort of naturally lazy we don't like that quite as much all right there there is the man who i us here is the exposition of pride there's the man who, through the suppression of his neighbor, hopes to excel, and for that reason only, desires to see him cast down from his greatness. That is a problem of object, pride. There's the man who fears to lose power, favor, honor, and glory because of another's success, so grieves for it that he loves the opposite. That is envy, problem of object. And there's the man who takes umbrage at injury, so that he becomes greedy for revenge, and such a man must seek to harm another. So the object of anger seems to be harm of another. Wrong object. All right, let's hear the last four then. These three forms of love are repented of below us here. We've already seen them. Now I want you to understand the other, which seeks good, but not as it ought to do. Everyone has a confused notion of good on which he sets his mind and which he desires. And therefore, everyone tries to attain it. So everybody starts off with not quite the right idea of the good, but some idea of it. If the love which draws you to see or reach it is idle, that means lazy, that means you are slothful, that means you are on terrace four, then it will happen here on this cornice, that after proper repentance, you suffer for it. There's another good which does not bring happiness. It is not happiness. It is the benign essence which is the root and fruit of every good. The love which gives itself too much to this is wept for in the three circles above us. That would be avarice and prodigality, as well as gluttony, as well as lust. Those things which appear to be good when you pursue them, but when you see their effects, see that they are not good, which is very similar to a dream we are about to have about... Hmm... A witch. All right, all right. I'm going to tell you that dream right after I describe the slothful little 
We, I could talk a little bit more about love right here, but I'm, I'm not going to exactly, but uh, we do get a perceptual account for how love works from Virgil in 1816 to 75. Perhaps I'll talk about that after the quiz tomorrow. All right, let's talk about the slothful very quickly, and then we're going to talk about Statius and the witch, and then you'll be prepped for tomorrow. All right. We get to circle four. So now we know that the objects of love are not the issue, but the way that one goes about one's love. If one is slothful, that means one is lazy. If one is lazy, that means one pursues one's uh, endeavors with great vigor and energy or with a lack of energy. Lack of energy. You don't put enough forward. And everybody here, I think, has probably heard at some point or another or witnessed somebody being told in their presence, you haven't given enough. You didn't put your heart in it. You didn't, uh, you didn't try your best. You just didn't, you didn't give it the, uh, the, you didn't give it the, uh, the old college try. There we go. That's an old way of saying it. And so what is it that these spirits are doing? Well, Dante's been talking to Virgil about rational love. And so he, like you, is starting to fall asleep. As he's about to fall asleep, he hears, there are a bunch of spirits running towards him. And so now we know, obviously, that what is the punishment to those who were lazy during life and like Balakwa like to sit around doing nothing? Well, now they have to hustle all the time, everywhere that it is they're going. Like a furious crowd of Bacantes, which is actually very nerve-wracking. <coughs> because Bacantes, if you were a male like Dante was, and you happen to be like Pentheus in the actual play, the Bacantes by Aeschylus, um, well, or excuse me, uh, Euripides, yes, Mm, yes, Euripides, not, not Aeschylus. Um, well, the Bacantes would come and rip off your head. They did that to Orpheus. They did that to Pentheus, too. It, in fact, his own mother did that to him. She was so overcome by frenzy. And so they're overcome by vigor and frenzy now. They're like, imagine you all when you were four. Imagine Mr. Schmidt now opens a treasure chest full of every candy. What then happens to Mr. Schmidt? Tiny feet crush him as you all scream and run forward to get the candy because it is the best moment of your lives, right? Imagine I also had a big bird in there and maybe a Mickey Mouse or whatever your favorite stuffed animal was from when you were four years old. Does everybody remember the thing they loved more than anything at that point? Yes, that inanimate $4 thing. It's amazing what we can love in this world. In any case, hurry, hurry. And let no time be lost through lack of love. So they've already lost all the time that they're going to lose. Now they have to gain time. And so we understand that one's mind bends towards the object which one naturally loves. And so we get a further account of how love works. So apparently it's natural. Your mind just bends towards things. Well then, that which your mind bends towards makes an impression, either a good or a bad impression on your mind. Okay, okay, and that impression itself can be a good representation of the object or a bad representation of the object. You can have a very vague idea of how something works or is, or you can have a very good idea. It works with people too, right? When you get betrayed by somebody, you thought you had a very good idea of who they were. What kind of idea did you actually have? A bad idea, because you could have never accounted for the fact of how they acted with your former idea of them and then they act in that way, which means your idea was explicitly what? Wrong. Wrong. Bad. Exactly. And so, you know whether a love is good or bad then, according to Dante, by its effects. 
Because you have a very vague and primitive idea of everything around you. The only way you know whether your ideas of reality, of the people around you, of the things around you are correct, is whether your ideas actually work. Whether they have the effects that you expect. And so if you say love a person and you think you have the right idea of them, and, well, you keep having a good relationship with them for, say, 50 years, and then you're dying and still loving them, well, probably it was something like a good love. But say you develop, say, a love for, I don't know, eating ice cream sundaes every meal of the day, and all of a sudden you were a great track athlete, and now you uh, can't even move your thumbs very fast to play the video games that you now do instead of uh, running, well, then perhaps you know that that which you love had a bad effect on you and therefore was a bad love. Hmm. Huh. That does seem fair. And so even though you do not choose what you love, you do have a choice of how you pursue that which you love. Do you give it enough time? Do you give it too little time? Do you give it enough energy? Do you give it too little energy? Is that the art of life? Learning how to correctly pursue that which you want or love. I wonder, I wonder. All right, last couple slides, very fast, very fast. All right, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this dream, but it is important for your assessment tomorrow. We have our second dream, Dante falls asleep. In this dream, an old hag, lopsided, moving like Thersites, limping, with cross eyes, is looking at him. It's very like a reverse version of a scene from The Shining, if you ever see that where a beautiful woman all of a sudden turns into an ugly hag. Actually, that, that scene is probably explicitly taken uh, from Dante here, because it means the same thing, which is this. When you look at the sins of the flesh clearly with your rational intellect, are they very attractive? No, they are gross and gnarly, and you want nothing to do with them. But once you indulge in them and let them cast their spell over you, do you then see them in a new light? Yes. Do you blind yourself to their effects to enjoy their, their current pleasure? For example, if you're eating cake every meal of the day and you are, say, gaining weight, what might you ignore? What might you focus on? Might you ignore the effects of your cake eating and focus on the taste of the cake? Well, that seems to be the idea that you change your focus inappropriately when you indulge in, say, a sin of gluttony or overeating or overdrinking, or a sin of lust over pursuing that which causes physical pleasure, or, uh, or, or avarice over pursuing uh, money rather than uh, just getting the money necessary in order to fulfill the functions you need. And so the idea here seems to be that that which is obviously a flaw at first when you allow yourself to hear its song or when you expose yourself to its pleasure, that is when it catches you because you stop focusing on the effects of the sin and you start focusing on its momentary experience. And I would really, really, really encourage you to think about that. Because isn't the fact that, say, somebody breaks a diet because they stop thinking about what the effects of their diet is, which is increased health, and because they say, just want to focus on the momentary pleasures of whatever food it is that they're eating. <laughs>